After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, this is Raghu Marcus and Mind Rolling, and I have with me today, well we used to, uh, when I first started doing these podcasts, I was doing them with old friends that have met decades ago, and uh, people would say, boy, you're just going after that low-hanging fruit, ain't you? And uh, so today, this is, a, a one would say, a very low-hanging fruit which uh, doesn't explain the uh, substantial uh, uh, relationship we've had for uh, quite a long time. Jack Cornfield. Jack, welcome. Gosh, I'd never been called low-hanging fruit before. I know I was fruity, <laughs> See, but, but, but this is low-hanging fruity. That's, uh, <laughs> my teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to say uh, that when you go to a mango tree um, and you shake the tree... And the low-hanging fruit comes. Pick up the good mangoes and don't pick up the rotten ones. He said, this is part of being mindful. People think that mindful is just being able to notice what's happening. But that's only the first half of mindfulness. Mm. The second half is a mindful response. Like, how do you choose and direct? So when you have those two together, um, you pick the low-hanging fruit and you check out, you know, is it any good or not? So yeah. we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, now, uh, one thing, of course, we're going to talk about today. Jack's uh, written a new book. It just came out, I believe, very recently, in the last couple of weeks, no? Yes. Uh, and it's called No Time Like the Present, Finding Freedom, Love, and Joy Right Where You Are. Now, without seemingly seeming exceedingly uh, insider in terms of my friendship with Jack, uh, to be objective, uh, I have to highly recommend this book. It is just so chock full of just the right kind of, uh, uh, of teachings that, that can affect what we are going through positively uh, in very, very difficult times, which I'm going to talk about in, in a minute. And but Jack, you know it's so beautiful with all the stories that that's what makes this come alive. There are so many stories of real people going through real life events, in in a way that are just so poignant and wonderful. I just got to say that. Um, thank you, thank you, and um, I love being a storyteller. I have to say, I mm. learned some of the art from our beloved friend Ramdas, um, the master storyteller that he is. And collecting stories, it feels like stories 
are a direct way to connect one heart to another. Um, to tell a story engages us, and then we begin to wonder, well, what's going to happen? And there are ways that stories speak to our uh, our essence in a, in a beautiful way. Hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but before we get into some of the things that I am very interested in in the book and sharing with uh, with our audience, I have been doing some podcasts since the beginning of this year when the new administration ha- came into effect with many, Jack, many of our um, our friends that are part of the Be Here Now Network. And, of course, your, your, your really close friends, Sharon and Joseph in, in included. Um, and uh, I, so this is my opportunity to just get from you in, in a personal way what you were going through when this, the reality of what has happened happened, the election, and then since then, some of the very, very tough news that we get on a day-to-day basis. And, uh, and much of what I've been relating with people has been about the anxiety, of course, the, the chaotic nature of, of these day-to-day reports, the uh, fear. People are going through a lot of very, very tough stuff. And none the least, of course, the polarization that we feel. And, and, and in this book, you do address that. And, uh, and I have some, some stuff that I'll prompt you about. But can you just tell me, you know, in terms of your own personal, how did you, in, how did you encounter this stuff, these emotions, the, the reality, the, the of the situation where, you know, many, many, many people are being affected. So, Raghu, um, of course I was affected, um, but I need to say first that I don't make any assumption about those who, listening, having a particular political affiliation or a particular point of view. Some may have voted for Hillary, some for Bernie, some for... Uh, Trump, those Americans who are listening, some might be outside the country. So one thing that feels very important is not to make prior assumptions about what's good or bad or where it all leads in the the bigger game, um, and certainly not to kind of pigeonhole a group of people. Um, So that's the first piece. Um, As much as anything, and everyone said it, it demands a time of listening. That being said, um, uh, yes, I experienced uh, fear myself and anxiety, um, mostly a deep, deep concern for vulnerable people. Um, And there is in uh, the Buddhist teachings on why society says that a society that meets together in harmony and respects each of the members and departs in harmony can be expected to prosper and not decline where there's a mutual respect and a society which cares for the vulnerable among us um, the women the children and others um, can be expected to prosper and not decline in a society in which uh, the environment and the natural world is cared for can be expected to prosper and not decline And I was able to talk about these things at the first White House Buddhist gathering, which was a year and a half ago or so. I doubt I'll be invited back in this administration, but 
you never know. Um, and uh, said that not only are these eternal truths, but that there are ways to train and practice these. There are ways to train ourselves in compassion and empathy, ways to train ourselves in mutual respect with mindfulness and care. There are ways to train ourselves in emotional regulation so that we can be with one another without fueling conflict. Um, and those are the underlying principles. And so my fear that came was that we're headed in a direction that would harm the vulnerable, um, whether it's immigrants or the environment or people of color or those who are poor, or all those that we can name as um, vulnerable in the society. Um, and of course, over these months in teaching, I've had thousands of people come and many express the anxiety. There are some things that are really important to understand. Um, the first is that we don't want to take the anxiety of the culture and the terror and the fear that the political world is fomenting um, into our hearts. Um, part of the way politics works, not just now, but for centuries. And H.L. Mencken, a hundred years ago, great commentator, said <clears throat> that most of the work of politics is to scare the populace in all kinds of ways so that they will vote for you. Um, but the kind of messages of fear and terror that are out there on all sides um, easily can kind of colonize our nervous system and take over our heart. So the first thing is um, not to listen to too much news, you know, to titrate it. Seriously, because, um, yes, you want to pay attention, and it's very important, but it's easy to get um, overrun and overwhelmed. Uh, the second is to remember what Thich Nhat Hanh said, that when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so we can become that person on the boat in the stormy seas or with the pirates. Now, to do this internally, um, it can help to find a meditative safe place or a, a meditative resource in yourself or a contemplative resource to sit quietly, first take some breaths and acknowledge or bow to the anxiety or fear that's present. You can't just push it away because that's just fear of the fear. You acknowledge it and it's trying to protect you. You can say, thank you, I'm okay for now, thank you. This is fear, this is anxiety. And then as you breathe a little bit, having mindfully acknowledged it, find the place in your body that feels safest, connected to the earth, your buttocks in the chair, your feet in the floor, or remember a time when you felt the most safety in your life, which might be with your grandmother when you were young or, you know, in the you know, company of somebody that you really respected and cared for, beautiful circumstance or safe place that you've been. And let that fill your body and remember that there is trust in humanity and trust in safety that you can carry. Um, that we've survived generations of struggles and wars and racism and all the things that create human suffering have been one current. But another current is human dignity and human survival, which can't be taken from you. And feel the safety and the confidence 
And from that place, you can observe or witness with loving awareness, um, you know, the political situation, the resonance in your body, the anxiety and so forth, but not take it so, so seriously. Or you can take the anxiety and the fear and inwardly make an altar and put on the altar Mother Mary or Solomon or Jesus or Kuan Yin or Buddha or whoever it is and say, all right, you hold this for now. You hold this, the concern and fear that I have and hold the care for the environment and all the human beings and let me find a place of peace and you carry this so that when those thoughts come, you can acknowledge them and say, all right, these are being held by Mother Mary. These are being held by Kuan Yin or Buddha. Um, and it allows your body to relax and come back to a, a place of center. And then you can sense, I can plant seeds. And, you know, you stretch out your arm and mend the part of the world that you can touch or you go into the garden of life. In Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That is, you quiet the mind and tend the heart, and then you get up and you sweep the garden of the world. So you sweep or you plant your seeds or you mend whatever metaphor you like. You offer your peace, um, but you do it from a place of a quieter mind and a heart that has been uh, protected and tended in some way. Hmm. I, I should say, by the way, um I, I ended my question with uh, polarization, the vast polarization that is going on in our country. And, the, and of course, by, not, by us making an assumption, which you properly corrected at the beginning, that anybody can be listening, and it is not necessary, uh, I th and I do believe this, but I went right into a polarized place of assuming we are unhappy, we are facing anxiety, we are facing fear as a result only of, of the fact that Trump is president. But I think everybody is facing some, uh, some very, very, um, I mean, it's part of the same blood. That, that it's are. uncertainty, and we're in the truth of uncertainty. And um, uh, yes, it's, it's widespread in all kinds of ways. And there are ways to tend to ourselves and tend to the earth and the things that we care about um, where we whip it up and we get into conflict with one another and we're afraid all the time. And, you know, we or there are ways to stand up for what's right, um, to care deeply, um, but to do it from a place of greater presence and and um, spacious heart um, and that we become the vessel of peace in some way. When I was walking one morning with Ajahn Chah, my teacher, out on alms round, um, we went by a field and there was a giant boulder in the middle of the field. And he said, is that boulder heavy? <laughs> and we said, oh, yes. And he said, smiling, not if you don't pick it up, <laughs> you know. And there was something in the pith of that teaching mm. that... It, it's healthy for us to see what we should be picking up and what we should allow to be the way that it is so that we can till the field or plant or whatever, but not necessarily carry the suffering mm. in an unhealthy way. Mm. Yeah. Now, um, since we're, we're talking about uh, 
spaciousness a little bit you mentioned and one of the first things in the book uh, i know that people can really use some ad- advice here regarding um and i'll it's it's the combination of awareness and the witness and and of course as you know ramdas has in particular has talked about witness I mean, he talked about mindfulness in the late 60s after he first came back from India. He just didn't call it that. Um, But uh, he certainly was very emphatic about developing a witness. And I think that one of the issues that many people have... We're actually, and I think you know this, we're running a course, Life in Balance Now, which is excerpts from these kinds of talks that we've done on the Be Here Now Network over the last couple of years. And, And I am... We are getting questions around the, the point from which the witness, the vantage point of the witness. And, and I think people can get uh, a little bit uh, confused where their self, the small self, is involved and there is um, s- more subject-object than not. Uh, am I explaining that right? I'm trying to get a little what, bit, a little bit. Um, um, self consciousness. Let me try to help. Yeah. Let I, me try to help. Okay. Self consciousness is just self conscious. Self consciousness is just thinking. Yeah. And self consciousness is self consciousness. The beautiful thing about mindfulness, which we'll use the word loving awareness, is that it just recognizes what's going on. Um, and as you become more mindful, you also become aware of some of the more subtle kind of thoughts that come. Oh, I'm being mindful now. Oh, I'm proud of myself. I can be mindful. Yeah. Or, oh, I'm being mindful. And, uh, you know, is this the right thing? So then that's doubt or, oh, I'm being mindful, but it feels like um, I've stepped out of the experience of life in some way. Is this healthy or not? And those are thoughts that come with it. And you can be lovingly aware of those. Those are the thoughts that are trying to figure out what you're doing. You let them be there, they pass, and the real game is just to be trusting of loving awareness itself, to come more into the present, to see the eyes of the children in front of you and their smiles, to tend and listen to your own body, to care for the things in front of you. If somebody's hungry, you feed them. If, um, you know, there's a stone in the road, you move it aside so that for you and other people, um, it's not a hazard. Um, you contribute, you add your your gifts and your beauty to the world. And there's a there's a story I want to read from the book, if I may, that yeah. kind of speaks to that. Because we, we get the idea that somehow we're supposed to, you know, do it right in spiritual practice. This is what you're talking about, really. Okay, yeah. how do I do? And, um, you know, it's a matter of playing and practicing and in our own way, uh, like Braille, feeling your way to what allows you to be loving and present for life. It's not that complicated. So um, uh, a Hawaiian educator named Puanani Burgess um, tells about helping people talk to each other um, uh, in a process she calls building the beloved community, which is Martin Luther King's phrase, I believe. And the exercise she uses is to tell three stories. The first, the story of all your names. The second, the story of your community. And the third, the story of your gift. One time, she says, I did a process with a group in our local high school. We went around the circle. 
we got to this young man and he told the story of his names well and the story of his community well. But when he got to the gift story, he asked, what mess? What kind of gift do you think I have? You think I'm in this special ed class and I can't read and can't do math? And why do you make me ashamed for to ask that kind of question, what kind of gift you have? If you had any gift, you think I'd be here? And she says, the boy shut down and I did too. I've never wanted to shame anyone before and I felt so bad. Mm. And a couple of weeks later, I'm in our local grocery store and at the other end of the aisle, I see him. And I think I'm not even going to go that way because I hurt him and I don't want to, you know, continue that. And I start to turn around, but he sees me and he raises his arms up and he says, Auntie, Auntie, I've been thinking about you, you know, two weeks thinking, what's my gift? What's my gift? And I say, okay, brother, what's your gift? He says, you know, I've been thinking, thinking I cannot do math and I can't read good. But Auntie, when I stay in the ocean, I can call the fish, and the fishy come every time. And every time my family is hungry, I can put food on my family table every time. And sometime when I stay in the ocean and the shark, he come and he look at me and I look at him and I tell him, uncle, I'm not going to take plenty fish. I'm just going to take one, two fish just for my family. All the rest I leave for you. And so the shark, he say, oh, you cool, brother. And I tell the shark, uncle, you cool. And the shark, he go his way and I go mine. And I look at this boy and I know what a genius he is. But in our society, the way the schools are run, he's destroyed, he's not appreciated. So when I talk to his teacher and the principal of his school, I ask, what would his life be like if the curriculum were gift-based? If we are able to see the gift in each of our children and each person that we meet, what would happen if our community were based on seeing the gifts in one another? Mm. And so this beautiful story um, is a kind of empowerment back to the those who are listening to each to say that we each have a gift. And loving awareness isn't so much about trying to imitate or be spiritual or, you know, get into some witness posture and try to figure out what that is. It's to tend your life with awareness and to shift your identity from the judging mind and the small sense of self and you notice it and it's there thank you for your judgment thank you for trying to protect me thank you anxiety thank <laughs> you for trying to protect me to the place of the heart that is compassionate and and vast and spacious um and says i have something of beauty to contribute my friend maladoma Somme, who's a west african shaman and medicine man um, who also has a couple of PhDs uh, <laughs> on the side, um, says that in the Dagara people, his people of West Africa, I love this metaphor, that they say that every child who is born, every human being, comes with a certain cargo. And you can think of the cargo ships that go up the West African rivers. And the point in life is to deliver your cargo. Everybody comes with a gift or a cargo like that story tells. And the gift may be to plant a beautiful garden or raise a lovely child or create a conscious business or stand up for justice or tend those who are in, in trouble. And we all have different gifts and it might be through arts and it might be through finance um, or education. Loving awareness is, is not complicated. Um, it slows us down a little. It allows us to tend our body and heart and mind. And it gives a shift, as this book points to, to a place of vastness, 
uh, of space and time where we're not quite so locked in. And Gandhi says, remember, all through history, there have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. So when we're worried about what's happening in the world in all these different ways, and Gandhi goes on, but in the end, they always fall. Always, he says. Mm. And so there's a kind of vast perspective that it's not in our control. We don't not responsible for the world, but we're responsible for our own heart and what we contribute to it. Mm. I, I just have to read one uh, something very briefly that you it's 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 just uh, it's so precise around what you're talking about right now, what you wrote. Whether it's physical or emotional pain, anything you give space to can be transformed. Whatever the situation, widen the space. Remember vastness. Allow ease and perspective. Spaciousness is the doorway to freedom. Your spacious heart is your true home. That's pretty great, Jack. Okay, that's all I got to say. Gee, it sounds good. Yeah, I should try it. (laughs) Yeah, everybody should try. Uh, A little further along, um, you told this story in the book. I mean, it is so incredible. I never knew it, and maybe I'm just not as educated uh, as I as I could be. They left college after a year or so, Uh, but. Yeah, no, terrible. Yeah, well, shame I'm, on you. Yes, yeah. uh, Canadian. An un- you know, uneducated Canadian. An uneducated huh? Canadian, yes. Um, but it's the story of uh, Dante, okay, uh, and, yeah. um, and um, Beatrice. Can you just you tell that? Do you want me the, to tell yeah, it? Yeah, would you? Sure. It's, it's sort of so really Dante is um, certainly in the Western civilization, one of the most celebrated and greatest of all poets like Shakespeare to have ever written. Um, And in the 1300s, when he was beginning to write the Divine Comedy, um, he was a young man and he was walking out along the river Arno in Florence and he saw this young girl named Beatrice, Beatrice, um, uh, and fell in love with her. He saw her as somehow carrying the divine as there's some kind of beauty that was not just her own but that that connected him to something eternal and it really touched him and he had a bit of contact with her um, and that love uh, but then she died in the plague was carried off Um, but she became his kind of muse and if you read the magnificent divine comedy Beatrice as a spirit carries Dante through um, heavens and hells, purgatorio and all of that, kind of as the, as the guide to this. Um, and and um, sh- that moment of love, in a way, represented for him eternity and opened a gate for him. Hmm. So, you know, centuries later, at the end of, toward the end of World War II, when the American and allied forces were coming up from North Africa and sweeping up through Italy, um, toward Germany with their tanks and mortars and bombers and so forth, the Germans in retreat, the German army, were blowing up all the bridges to prevent their movement north. But the German commander was also an educated man, perhaps more so than certain Canadians we're sitting (laughs) with. And um, 
Ouch. He didn't want to blow up the Ponte Vecchio, the, the beautiful bridge on which Dante had seen Beatrice. And it's not just a beautiful bridge, but it has all these uh, almost medieval-like uh, um, tiny shops and special things on it. It's a really amazing place. Um, and so he radioed to the American commander, and between them they agreed that if the Americans would not use that bridge for military purposes, the Germans wouldn't blow it up. And after that agreement, not a single soldier and not a single piece of equipment went across that bridge. And here in the height of a brutal um, war where so many people were dying and they were blowing up and bombing and killing people, this exquisite bridge was spared because Beatrice had stood on it and Dante had fallen in love with her and seen something divine. And that moment of love and that inspiration still resonated in the hearts of these two very hard-hearted, you know, military generals enough to say, let us spare this bridge. 650 years, that love. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jeez. And the art, and the, the art, the expression of art that came. So we don't want to... Um, minimize um, the effect of even a moment's deep touching of the love that makes the universe turn. Mm. In India, it's called the glance of mercy. When you go to see a, a guru or a teacher and they look at you with so much love and tenderness and compassion and just as if to see what Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, calls to see the secret beauty in you that nothing can you know, take from you. Um, as Merton goes on, he says, when we see each other that way, the big problem would be we would fall down and worship each other. <laughs> but when you're seen in that moment of love or when you see with the eyes of love, um, it touches, it awakens something that's so true in you and that you can um, find as, a, as an inspiration um, for your life thereafter. Mm. Um, another thing that struck me here in reading the book um, was around trust. And interestingly enough, of course, you and I have had that discussion about bringing that up in an in a upcoming retreat with Ramdas. And I think I remember telling you uh, how extraordinarily important I, th I think it was for us to talk about trust. Uh, I think it's something everybody can understand a lot more readily than, for instance, faith, which has a much more uh, uh, religious connotation, which maybe scares people. Um, so trust and love and the connection of the two and, and, and our ability to trust what is going on in our, in our immediate field, in our uh, field uh, that's runs beyond our family, beyond our co-workers, beyond our loved ones, into uh, the atmosphere of, uh, again, in, in this case, what's going on, uh, which feels like uh, we can get very untrusting in the universe. Uh, so let's talk about trust. 
Ah, Rumi's tomb, the great poet says, come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of life, though you have broken your vow a hundred times, ours is not a caravan of despair. And one of the great um, qualities of trust is that life wants to renew itself, that no matter how desolate things become, how paved over, you know, how cold the winter, how much the darkness, um, the seasons turn and the grass wants to, the grass and the weeds, they push themselves up through the cracks in the sidewalk, always. And the body wants to heal itself. Um, I think it was Voltaire who said that uh, um, the role of the physician is primarily to amuse the patient while nature does the healing. <laughs> and, you know, even in modern, even in the glories of modern medicine, thank God for antibiotics and modern surgery and so forth, you have modern surgery. It saves your life in some way, but it doesn't heal you. The healing comes after the surgery when the body re-knits together where it's been cut open, where the things that have been sewn reconnect themselves. There's a profound healing dimension to life itself that wants to renew. Um, and this is true uh, in every part of our life. It's never too late to start over. This is part of what trust means. And I talk a whole lot in the book about this. And I know it very well having gotten married this last year. Ramdas married my beloved Trudy Goodman, who I've known for 44 years now, and I, um, in his garden, in this little private ceremony. Um, and who would have thought at age now 72 that I would have some of the happiest, most joyful, mm. you know, months and years of my life um, after, you know, all this time. So um, there's something in us that wants to renew. And even though we can indeed be weighed down by our own suffering and the suffering of the world and feel like it's untrustworthy, um, mm -hmm. it, there's something bigger, a bigger game going on. Now, this isn't to be naive, you know, um, when I talk about trust, or for that matter, when I have a whole teaching in this book on forgiveness, to forgive doesn't mean to forgive and forget, um, because then we'd be hurt all over again. Forgive means, forgiveness is mostly for ourselves, to not carry hatred in our heart. I mean, the people who hurt us, they might be on vacation in the Bahamas right now, and we're sitting there, I hate you, I hate you, who's suffering, right? So it's really for our own heart. But the first step of forgiveness, besides seeing what happened, is to say, I'll do whatever it is in my power to prevent this harm from continuing to me or to anyone else. Um, so you, not being a naive in trust, you do what you can to stop harm. But then somehow there is also some deeper trust that inhabits the cells of your body and your being and more than that, the consciousness of who you are that you are part of the stream of life itself, renewing and giving birth to itself each day. Every morning at breakfast, you're born anew, right? You have a new day. Um, and it's possible to take this and um, trust that something new can come in it. Um, there's so many different 
you know, dimensions to trust. And again, I, I write about a trust in, you know, the body, trust in the heart, you know, when we're willing to listen to the heart um, and take our time to have a deep conversation. The Sufis, I think, call it so bad, the, the conversation of the heart. We can have it with ourselves. What really matters to me? What do I care about in the end? What, um, you know, in the end of my life? What will I look back on? And the questions are really simple. Did I love well? You know, um, did I live fully? Did I give my gift or my life? Um, and maybe did I learn to let go too so I could renew? Mm. Because otherwise at the end you have a kind of crash course in letting go. But they're not that complicated at the end. Um, and when we speak and listen to the heart in some way, what matters and how do I want to live, then that deep intention, um, you know, of a, which is the place of wisdom and compassion, that's where they're born, uh, speaks to us. Mm. Wise trust is another great uh, term that you use. And I think what you just said might apply there to wise trust. Uh, you did say the best forms of healing, therapy, and meditation are all about learning to trust. I love that too. And and there's a by the way, everybody. There's a, also you know there's much in this book also. Uh, around, uh, it's trust is definitely a, a major thrust that Jack talks about in the book. Uh, I think the biggest thread throughout the book, Jack, which is wonderful, is loving awareness and um, and that that vantage point being that place that we can develop within ourselves, I think, is uh, super important. And, of course, we've been going to these retreats with Ramdas for years, and uh, that's all he talks about these days. So uh, I think yes. it's, uh, it's really crucial. And aging with trust, as I said. Uh, but um, um, yeah, there's also enlightenment is fulfilled by the trusting heart. That uh, talk about that a little bit, and maybe uh, in relation to I love your stories of Ajahn Chah, and maybe in relation to some story ab about him in that way. I don't know if you have one at the top of your tip of your fingers. I, you know, that that quote that you said actually comes from the guy who used to be called the Third Zen Patriarch. Now he's called the Third Zen Ancestor. In in oh, yeah. the more contemporary parlance, Sengstan, who is this great Zen master, and he says, um, uh, yeah, <clears throat> that uh, to be liberated, uh, our liberation is one with the, with the trusting heart. Somehow we're not clinging to the way it's supposed to be, but instead we've learned to be with life as it is, and then with life as it is, we can be responsive rather than attached and grasping and reactive and caught up in all these ways. And it doesn't mean that we don't get caught up even, because that would be another model that we put on it, um, which we use to judge ourselves. And I remember a time that Ajahn Chah, my teacher, and I, we'd, he'd received a, vis, uh, a uh, request to go and visit a monastery on the Cambodian border that was... Uh, some hours away and we got in this pickup truck with this young guy who was going to be our driver um 
And it was a one-lane dirt road through the mountains, one and a half lane, basically. And mostly it was empty, but once in a while around the curves would come a, a logging truck or a giant bus, and then, or there'd be a water buffalo, but mostly it was empty. And as young men do, this guy was just racing along, and we'd be going around these curves, and it was scary as hell, basically, because you didn't know if there, you couldn't see if the bus was coming or the buffalo or whatever was there. Um, and so I'm holding on thinking, okay, I'm going to die as a monk, right? And trying to breathe into it. And then I look over and I see that Ajahn Chah's knuckles are white too. And I think, well, okay, we're, we're in it together anyway. <laughs> and finally, after, you know, a couple hours through the mountains, we come into the courtyard of this simple forest monastery on the Cambodian border. The car stops, everything's quiet. And Ajahn Chah turns to me and smiles and says, scary ride wasn't it he didn't pretend it wasn't a scary ride he knew it was you know he didn't pretend that those things weren't there but there was this kind of trust and loving awareness that this is the way this is where we are he did tell the guy to slow down by the way a couple <laughs> of times but without any real great impact mm. so it wasn't that he wasn't responsible to that um, but the guy kept speeding up anyway i mean it's a scary ride so this is our life. It's a scary ride. It's also a magnificent. It's it's unbearably beautiful, and it has the ocean of tears. It's what it is. Mm. Um, uh, now, one of the things I want to add in this is that people ask, and, and as I've been talking about the, this book, there are a lot of practices in it, mm. but people ask, can I get some closer help, some more um, systematic help, and actually learning how to do the things that you talk about. Mm. Um, and so I want to add that um, my colleague and friend Tara Brock and I have created a 40-day um, program called Mindfulness Daily that's 12 minutes a day, 13 minutes a day with a little bit of teaching and then six minutes or seven minutes of meditation that you do for 40 days. It's cheap. It's like 30 bucks or something. Through sounds true. But for people who are listening and want to know, all right, how can I actually create a daily practice right. in a very short way, mindfulness daily, or the other one, which is equally good, is called mindfulness daily at work that gives you the same teachings and how to use them, you know, in work circumstance. So, mm. um, so the things that I'm talking about, the, the training I was doing with Ajahn Chah was to learn these, these very things that are in, in these very these simple meditations, mm. um, and yet they change your life. And by the way, everybody, that uh, will be available when you go to beherenownetwork.com/mindrolling. You'll go up there, and we will have the links to the to Jack and Tara's uh, Sounds True course. Which uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that is very important. And and of course, this course we're doing is is somewhat similar with all of our yes, friends. Yes, also beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah. But uh, I think I think it's perfect because it is short bursts of of uh, of wise words that you can assimilate in on your day to day throughout your day. And I think and a that, daily and a daily meditation. Yeah. Uh, that sort of builds systematically. How do you pay attention with loving awareness mm. to breath, to body, to emotions, to trauma, to compassion, to 
spaciousness, how to actually build mm. those into your own, into your own life. Mm. Beautiful. Um, and speaking of emotions, uh, there's uh, one very important chapter called "Freedom from Troubled Emotions," and uh, and there's a there's a great quote here i'll read give me everything mangled and bruised and i will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and we will begin again that's from dina metzger who i actually don't know who that is but i love she is a she's a wonderful poet and a very powerful activist Mm. and for those who are uh, in generation from some decades ago She's a woman who had a mastectomy, um, and there's a famous photograph of her um, naked from the waist up with one breast, oh. um, and the place, the place where her breast was removed, she has a dragon tattoo. Before tattoos, tats were kind of popular that went from her belly all the way up through her body, oh. and her arms are in the air like, you know, the breast is gone, that. but the dragon is still here and she's a wonderful poet and an old friend Mm. yes now i I have seen that so give me every mangled everything mangled and bruised and i will make a light of it Mm. to make you weep and we will have rain and we will begin again and this is the the poet's language and poetry is like music it's language that's more like music to the soul um that says um, no matter how broken or how difficult, there also is the seeds of something new that can be watered with compassion and tenderness and loving awareness, and something new um, will come from it. Mm. We'll talk a little bit about the practical side of, of dealing with disturbing, troubled emotions. And uh, obviously, uh, what we were talking about before and your comments around spaciousness and awareness, loving awareness, uh, go right to the point. But maybe just uh, you know, a little bit more around the practicalities that people can engage with to uh, resolve. So there are a number of things that are important. Um, the first is to recognize that they're there. And to acknowledge almost again with loving awareness with a bow, oh, this is trauma, this is anger, this is pain, this is grief, um, this is frustration, you know, this is overwhelm and anxiety. Um, so, first is to acknowledge them, and sometimes it's helpful even to name them in this very simple way anxious, fearful, um, angry, angry. The minute you name them, it's like you have the name of the dragon and it starts to give you a little power over it. And then you give some space to it. And you say, oh, this is like weather. It comes and it's powerful, but the loving awareness becomes the witness of it. However, if it's very powerful um, and it's connected to some deep trauma, um, you can get overwhelmed or re-traumatized. So as you approach the big difficult emotions and traumas, part of what you want to do is to first get a stable ground, a sense of, again, connection in your body with the earth or remembering, as I said, some place of safety or some relationship with your grandmother or grandfather or or a teacher or loved one or someone where you feel like this is well-being. 
and I have this resource in me in this beautiful way. And then from the sense of well-being, um, you approach the, the really difficult emotion just a little bit, and you feel what it's like in your body. And you try to soften around it and let it have it say, let it release a little, because it's all bottled up in there, but only a little bit. And then you go back to that place of well-being so you don't drown in it, so you don't get lost in it. And there's a kind of pendulation back and forth a little bit at a time when it's very powerful. Uh, or you bring in the quality of compassion and you let yourself feel in your heart how many people have been overwhelmed by this same emotion, by anger or fear or self-doubt or judgment or confusion. This very day, how many human beings are wrestling with this and you begin to hold it with some tenderness and say it's not personal this is part of the human dance human condition and then with it with that tenderness and then going back to the place of a powerful stability you say all right let me feel a little bit of it at a time let it tell a little of its story now let me digest it and quiet myself and see if i can be steady and let a little more in so those are a few hints mm, yeah great <laughs> Uh, and uh, another thing that's so wonderful, Jack, in the book is your own using yourself as an example and, and your honesty about where you've been and, and some of the things that have uh, you've had to deal with. And one of them I can relate with uh, like 100 billion percent, and that is uh, you talk about your dad and you talk about some of the difficulties there and, and the eventuality of uh, your own suppression of of anger and emotion and so on and how you dealt with that and I had the exact same thing I was extraordinarily fortunate <laughs> that my father who I had a horrible time with when I was especially as a teenager and uh, he, he was just uh, despotic and, uh, and anxiety causing on a day-to-day -day basis and and very angry very angry as your dad was uh, I fortunately, through good karmic grace, whatever you want to call it, my father came to India while I was with Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, and uh, it's a famous story that, that we tell at these uh, retreats and satsangs over the years. He uh, actually, Maharaji, had me give my father acid, and my father was like completely straight. I mean, he might have had a toke of a, 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 a joint or something. And that was, he actually was like throwing dynamite. And his whole life changed after that. And then we began to be able to have a relationship. So I was extraordinarily fortunate. But like you, over time, that was uh, the suppression of the anger and then the expression of it in, in, uh, at times which were not appropriate, to say the least, you know, plagued me. And I'm still dealing with that stuff today. Now, one of the, you as a monk were, were dealing with that. And then when you got out, I think out of grad school, um, you were uh, working with therapy. And I think um, there's a good point to make here around working on inner spiritual life and uh, and also dealing with some of the psychological, the effects of, of the psychology of, the, of what we've gone through in the past. Can you? Well, I, I do tell that story in this book and in also some prior books, like in The Wise Heart, I tell more of my own inner work with it. Um, and it was painful, ter terrible and traumatic. And 
I didn't even realize how much trauma I carried until I found that trying to be a peaceful person, not like my dad, I'd actually suppressed the the rage and anger that I had at him and his beating of my mother and mm. repeatedly and his, you know, violence toward his children and so forth. Um, and what I didn't say about trauma, and it's terribly important to add, is that um, for the deep traumas, it's it's really hard to do on your own. You can work with them in meditative ways and with a skilled teacher, but it's very helpful to complement your spiritual practice with counseling, therapy, with somebody who's skilled um, to help release and hold the big traumas that we carry. And I found that the partnership of the two um, actually has really been liberating mm. for me. Oh, yeah. um, so, so that's a that's a message that um, that I think is important because we there are different things. One is we think we're supposed to handle it ourselves, and these things that happen in relationship to another person often need the witnessing and presence of another person um, in order to heal them. And the other problem is that people can kind of try to do a spiritual bypass in yeah. which, okay, I don't have it, I don't feel it, you know, it's gone now, but then it leaks out and it comes in all kinds of other ways because it's still held in the body. Um, and you know, we know kind of what's buried in there. And it's not that you have to go digging around or make your family history the main thing of your spiritual practice, but if there's something big, as you shared or as I experienced, um, it becomes part of your life karma, your life work. And then I'm in all of the above, get all the help you can. Yes, your spiritual practice. Yes, some good, you know, skillful trauma work or therapy. Yeah. And just to say that there's a really deep um, capacity in this body and in this heart and mind, no matter where you are, and you know, what struggles you have, that wants to heal, that wants to regulate, um, that wants to flower in some way. And it's not by pulling the petals of the flower open, but rather by watering it with the attention of loving awareness and compassion, um, by taking some quiet time and listening in a deep way, by undertaking in a simple way some trainings of spiritual meditations that help you learn how to be present. All those things, um, they give a, they, they're an invitation to freedom, to a kind of well-being and freedom of spirit um, that allows your life to flower. And we can look at someone like Nelson Mandela or Aung San Suu Kyi when she came out of 17 years of house arrest, Nelson Mandela 27 years in Raman Island prison with such magnanimity and graciousness and generosity, Nelson Mandela and forgiveness. He not only changed South Africa, but he changed the imagination of the world. Um, and he showed that they can put your body in prison but no one can imprison your spirit, yeah. which is really the theme of the book, but it also is the truth that's offered again and again to us to remember that this possibility in us. Yeah. Uh, we have to close now. Boy, I could go on another hour here because there's so much rich content and teachings in this book, Jack. Uh, and I will say one other little term that you've used is loving mindfulness. I've never heard that. Mm. I love that combination. And, and, and just one little phrase. I mean, I'm, we have to put it, I'm going to put it out on, as a quote from you on the uh, network. Extend your window of tolerance. Mm. 
I mean, that is, I mean, so crucial for obviously you're talking about for feelings, for anger, shame, pleasure, joy, grief, all of it. But I think, I think that that statement can extend in a much broader way and going back full circle to what we started with the the difficulties that are are going on in this world and 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 how I couched it right off the bat which was a very polarized which I I can get around this um and extending our window of tolerance I think it's a beautiful uh, uh message it really is so uh thanks for being here Jack it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be connected. You. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I have so much appreciation for the work of the Be Here Now Network and all the things that you and Ramdas and our friends are doing. So oh, I'm, thank you. I'm grateful. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you. you. No time like the present. Jack Cornfield, go definitely pick up the book. And Jack, by the way, is. Uh, is not somebody who is. Uh, I had to bug Jack to do this because I wanted to get this book uh, out there to people, especially to our audience. So he's not somebody who does that, and uh, it's it's a. I I feel it's an extraordinarily important book. It's just very rich. Uh, it's so much help for people. Uh, and thank you, Raghu. Yeah, and and by the way, little uh, self-interest here. Go when you buy the book, go to Amazon using our link on BeHereNowNetwork.com because we're an affiliate and we get a few shekels of of uh, every purchase and uh, helps. It helps you. It helps Jack. It helps us at the network, and so it's a win-win. So please do that. And uh, Jack, we'll, we'll do this again sooner than later, I hope. And again, I thank you. Thank you, Raghu. Take care. Mm-hmm.